The big story of the day is where we'll start. Justin Fuente is out as the football coach at Virginia Tech. We'll talk about Brennan Armstrong's status for the Pittsburgh game and a little ACC hoops. All that and Aaron McFarlane's puppy chow this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 67 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC Sports Podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 13-time Sports Writer of the Year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. And David, I don't know if the listeners know the the backstory, but when we do these podcasts, I put together a rundown so we kind of know what we're talking about. And this morning, I just dragged my rundown and dropped it in the old recycle bin because the story of the day obviously is out of Blacksburg, where Virginia Tech has parted ways, essentially fired Justin Fuente with a negotiated buyout. After six seasons, Fuente will not finish out this season. The team is heading to Miami for its game. J.C. Price, a former All-American defensive lineman for the Hokies, will serve as the interim coach. David, let's start with this. I think we expected the move. I don't know that we expected the timing. Were you surprised to wake up this morning to the news that Justin Fuente was out? Not really, Mike, simply because of the landscape, especially in the Power Five, but really in all of college football. Look around the country. Virginia Tech joins a group of Power Five programs that include LSU, USC, Washington, Washington State, and Texas Christian, all right now in coach search mode. And why are more and more schools making these decisions before the end of the season? The early recruiting's Uh, signing period. December 15th comes a lot faster than early February, and schools don't want to risk torching an entire recruiting class. And therefore, they want to make their moves early and get on the market and get their vacancies filled. Yeah, you know, you talk about the law of unintended consequences. So many coaches were in favor of that early signing period for so many reasons and still are. Mm -hmm. Um, But The fact that coaches are moved on more quickly uh, was definitely one of those unintended consequences. Now, David, another thing with the timing, Justin Fuente, you reported, was offered the opportunity to finish coaching the season, and he declined. Does that surprise you at all? No, I I understand. And people are going to say he quit on his team. And Whit Babcock said today in his news conference with us that no, he didn't, that he, Babcock, understands why Fuente elected to just end it now. Uh, if the way the way Justin thought about it, and, uh, according to Witt, was if I'm not the guy moving forward, let's just end this now. And I, I get that. So I don't know that, you know, Ed Orgeron is a different guy at LSU. He decided he wanted to, to, to coach the rest of the year. But I think there was a little more goodwill when you have a national championship just two years in your rearview mirror. And maybe Justin Fuente, and rightfully so, thought, you know, a lot of fans don't want me here anyway. Let's just rip the Band-Aid off this thing. Yeah, and I, there are many fans out there that feel like it didn't happen, right? They've been slowly pulling the Band-Aid off for two and a half years. So uh, I, I get that. You know, let, let's look at the, the Justin Fuente tenure here. And David, when he was hired, you, you'll recall, he was hired at the same time as Bronco Mendenhall. And I'll only speak for myself here. I thought Justin Fuente out of Memphis was a home run hire. And I thought Bronco Mendenhall was a real clutching at straws higher and Bronco appears to be going strong and Justin's been shown the door. Um, I'm a little surprised certainly at at the way that's gone. His first two seasons, David, 19 and eight, he won a division title his first year and people can say he inherited a very good team, which he did, but he also plugged in a key piece in in Gerard Evans. (laughs) Yes, Uh, They don't win without that find, without that offense, without what they crafted around Gerard Evans. Things could not have started much better for Justin Fuente and Blacksburg, could they? Absolutely not. Coastal Division title, his first season on the job. ACC Coach of the Year. Gave eventual national champion Clemson all it wanted mm-hmm. in the ACC championship game in Orlando. And then followed it up with 9-4 and four 
and a and a bowl uh, and a bowl game again. Uh, not not the result they wanted, losing to Oklahoma State, but still, you know, just off off to a great start. People were lauding the Beamer to Fuente transition as just a textbook way to follow the legend. And I think Mike, like you, I also believe that Fuente was a terrific hire. And nationally, the hire was was met with acclaim. He had been a successful coordinator at TCU, part of a program that finished number two in the country and went 13-0 and and beat Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. And then he goes on to Memphis and is a head coach for four years. Wildly successful the last two with Paxton Lynch at quarterback. But much like, I, I think, Mike, this season mirrors Justin Fuente's six years at Virginia Tech, if you think about it. Really does, it started yeah. out with so much promise, beat North Carolina, national TV, top 10 in the country preseason polls, one of your coastal division rivals. And fantastic so environment, right? I mean, that felt yes. like Tech was back. Yes, so much hope. And then just like his overall tenure, it spiraled into mediocrity. I mean, look where they are right now. Five and five, three and three. In the last four years, Virginia Tech is 24 and 23 overall, 17 and 15 in the ACC. This just doesn't get it done. Now, I'm glad you mentioned the transition because a lot of people, and I'm sure national media too, they're going to dump this into the narrative box of, you don't want to be the guy who follows the guy. (laughs) And I don't think this goes there because I do give Justin Fuente and Whit Babcock and Frank Beamer a ton of credit for the transition. And I think that part was fine. I don't think this is about living up to to what Frank Beamer did because Frank had lean years at at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not as discouraging, I don't think, as what Justin's in right now. but I think Justin Fuente and Whit Babcock and Frank Beamer and Bud Foster, I think they still deserve, like, we don't go back back in time and take anything away. I think they handled the transition well. Where they have failed in terms of Fuente and, and Babcock and Fuente's staff is in building what was new, right? They talked so much about we're going to honor the past, but we're going to put our stamp on what's new. And I thought the first couple of years was great. And they were honoring the past and they were moving forward. And then they just never got going in their own direction. You know, when it, when it became undeniably Justin Fuente's program, it was undeniably mediocre. And, and that's the problem. And I thought, David, one of the really damning things for Justin Fuente was so much of the problems to me in this program and team start with the quarterback position. Mm-hmm. And he is, and he earned this reputation, right? This isn't, again, no revisionist history. Justin did a great job offensively at TCU and at Memphis. He did a great job with quarterbacks there. The quarterback position has been a revolving door. There's been no stability. And there has been, the last couple of years, not very good play at that position. When your reputation is the quarterback guru, you can't survive that. Mike, no matter what your reputation is, you can't survive that. No, no, I'm I'm, I'm being serious. I mean, quarterback will get you fired faster than anything. College, NFL, high school. If if you don't have that guy, you suffer the consequences. And you mentioned Gerard Evans. I mean, that cat went out and set school single season records. You I mean he rewrote them? He was fabulous in 2016. And since not only has it been a a revolving door at quarterback, it's been mostly very pedestrian play. And you, you look at it and and this is how fans look at it. Maybe not how Whit Babcock and Tim Sands, the university president do, but it's in stark contrast to the folks to the East on I-64 where Bryce Perkins was a generational quarterback for that program at UVA, followed by Brennan Armstrong, who just so happens to lead the country in total offense. And those guys squeezed out a bunch from Kurt Banker, too, on some very bad teams. (laughs) Uh, You're absolutely right. And and I do think it's, you know, a perfect storm for Fuente. If UVA was mired in its own mediocrity, uh, struggling, bad at quarterback, it certainly takes some of the shine, uh, the spotlight, at least off of the failings in Blacksburg. But, uh, you know, and I look at it and I wonder, it's not Justin Fuente's fault, per se, that Gerard Evans chose to leave a year early. But as a head coach, you're responsible for the fact that that's what happened. It's not Justin Fuente's choice or fault that Josh Jackson 
didn't want to compete for his job after being injured, that he took umbrage at that and transferred. But it happened on Justin Fuente's watch. Mm-hmm. It's not his fault that things went sour last year with Hendon Hooker and the cold and, and all that. But the way it was managed leads to Hendon Hooker leaving. It's not Justin Fuente's fault that Hendon Hooker is lighting the world on fire at Tennessee, but it is a bit of a, because I don't blame Justin. People, fans say, oh, he picked the wrong quarterback when he picked Braxton. Well, that's not nuanced enough. There was a lot more going on to then he just picked the wrong quarterback to have Braxton back and Hendon gone. But I do think it's damning that with the coaching Hendon Hooker is getting now against arguably much better defenses, he's putting up huge numbers. That doesn't look great. Nor does Braxton Burmeister's performance. Mm-hmm. Just, right. a, if, just a very jarring contrast. And, and you know, Mike, how, how crazy is this? We, we were talking about Tech and, and UVA and looking at it through that prism. Justin Fuente went a combined 9-2 and two against Carolina and UVA. The two programs that Virginia Tech wants to beat more than any other. And he's gone. Yeah. And that segues into another thing. And, and I don't know, again, that this is something that this might be more perception than reality. But Justin Fuente had a ton of success recruiting in North Carolina. The social media for the school built up their Texas to VT stuff. The perception around the state, right or wrong, was that they were emphasizing Texas and Carolina and some of these other places over Virginia. Now, I don't know that that's true, yeah, I don't but it is. I, and I, I don't think it is, but I do believe 100% that that is the perception that it, social media backfired on them here because they were hyping up Texas to VT and dominating recruiting in North Carolina. They gave off that impression. And I think that off the field really hurt Justin Fuente and the staff. I think certainly with fans, it did, Mike. And maybe in a way, state high school coaches. Very much high school coach, yeah. But recruiting is now a universal endeavor. It's not like when Frank Beamer and his staff owned the 757 and dominated the state. With with social media and every game being on television, programs can go anywhere and, and recruit now. And to think that anybody is going to come to Virginia Tech and all of a sudden start landing Every five and four star that comes through the Commonwealth, I think is delusional. You're probably right, but you've got to get some. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, Ohio State, their star, their, you know, running back is from Virginia, from the Richmond area. You look at Notre Dame and Chris Tyree, a running back from the Richmond area. You look at the big uh, lineman that just chose North Carolina over UVA and Notre Dame. Where was Tech on that final list even? They just... They don't seem to be in the running. And again, I do think a lot of it is perception. And I think you're 100% right. Like the days of Virginia Tech is Virginia's school and it's going to get all of Virginia's players is a thing of the past. But you got to be in there. You've got to change that perception. Um, I think that really hurt him in in terms of this decision too, the the sense that um, they were losing the state recruiting uh, when they shouldn't. I'm curious about personality Mm -hmm. because a year ago, when Whit Babcock had the fairly unprecedented press <laughs> conference to say, we're not firing Justin Fuente, <laughs> um, which nothing tells you you're on the hot seat quite like your, your AD having to have a press conference to confirm he's not firing you. One of the things that came up was about essentially, for lack of a better term, marketability, marketability um, reaching out to fans, being better with the media, being a, a not warmer, fuzzier, but just a more approachable face for the program. And I do think, maybe not personally with me, but I do think that Justin Fuente made a lot of strides in that area this year. How much did his disposition, um, his non-affinity for media stuff, how much did that all kind of add into the snowball that was working against him here? I think it was part of it, Mike. How much I think is, is hard to tell. I actually thought Fuente was better with media this season very much a, a, a little more forthright no, forthright is probably not the the right word but a little more engaged willing to open up a little bit more and 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 share some but to many it was too little too late and he always said he had no problem helping with with fundraising and such 
I never, of course, we never saw him engage with, with donors. So it's impossible to tell how, how that went. And it, it, it's unusual because if you just take Justin Fuente's kind of Midwestern roots and, and sensibilities, I think they fit pretty well in yeah. Blacksburg. And because he, he doesn't want to be the local celebrity, he's, he's very down to earth and very you know, kind of to himself, but you know, he can, he, he can, he can engage, but it just, it never quite clicked. And then, you know, the, the Baylor thing yep. that really, really frosted a lot of fans. Yeah. And I think the administration too, and I know Witt said today during his press conference that, you know, that's in the past, we're behind that, but mm-hmm. I don't think you're ever past that, right? Like you, you, you can say what you want. There's always the sense of not, that this guy wronged me, but that this guy could do it again. And and I think that is something that even for the best intentions, you never fully get past it. Yeah, I agree. And so personality, and and I do agree with you. I mean, I thought he was better this year. I mean, sitting with him in that private session at ACC media day, when he was talking to us and he took all of my stupid questions about his fishing trip with his daughter, he was engaging. That was the first moment because we've heard this from, and I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say there. John Laser, uh, the voice of the Hokies, Wes McElroy, their sideline reporter and a great radio host in Richmond. They've told me over and over, man, I think if you sat down and had a beer with Justin Fuente, he's your kind of guy and, and you, you'd like him. Um, that was the first time it really came through for me. And and, and I kind of walked out of that room thinking like, OK, maybe maybe I hope this guy hangs in there and does OK. But like you said, I think I think too little too late. Um, there was some. You know, it's interesting. There, there's a lot to this. And we talked about the timing. But David, what said that they, they were able to negotiate the buyout? Because I think a lot of people were questioning, would they fire him at the end of the season? Or would they wait till December and save a couple million dollars? And uh, it's a topic for another day that, that it bothers me that two and a half million dollars is seen as a trivial amount in college athletics. Um, Montgomery County Schools, ask them if they could use that $2.5 million as a donation or or the hospital systems. But that's a whole point for another time. David, take us through kind of the logistics of why now from a financial standpoint, what they were able to negotiate and, and what that tells you. Yeah, they, they split it down the middle, Mike. Okay. They went from 10 or 7.5 to 8.75. I think I'm I'm doing the math cor- correctly there. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a compromise. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, again, th- these financial matters are just a bit galling, I think, in the big picture of the world. But um, it makes sense if this is where you were going. And um, I did some interesting number crunching here. And, and I, I got to find the paper where I did it. But and this is very different because this is an in-season coaching change. Um, we don't know what's going to happen at some other ACC schools, uh, Miami, Florida State, Syracuse. I'm looking at you, potentially Duke. We don't know what, what's going to happen. Um, so there may be competition coming for the coaches uh, within the conference itself. But if you look at, at three of the, the big hires for Whit Babcock, uh, Buzz Williams left the basketball program on April 3rd, 2019. Four days later, they announced the hiring of Mike Young. James Johnson was fired on March 17th, 2014. Four days later, they announced the hiring of Buzz Williams. Dennis Wolf from the women's basketball team, he was fired on March 22nd, 2016. Six days later, uh, they announced the hiring of Kenny Brooks away from JMU. This is an AD who has moved very expeditiously, uh, very efficiently through these processes. Now, I talked to one former coach today who joked with me, said, oh, come on, that guy's probably got his hire already done. Uh, That's probably a little over the top. But David, we expect this to move in, in a similar efficient vein. What you're saying is, is Whip Babcock is the Usain Bolt of athletic directors? <laughs> Let's just say he's prepared. <laughs> yeah, it, you don't make, in 99% of the cases, Mike, you don't make a coaching change just on a whim. You've been thinking about it and pondering it. And in Whip Babcock's case, for more than a year, right? Yep. So is there a short list? Absolutely, there's a short list. Does he already have at least a feel for who might and might not be interested? Yep. 
He does. Yeah, he, he told me, or I might have been right when he was hired or when he was uh, hiring JJ's replacement that, um, and I don't know if this, this might have been a little bit of a, a euphemism, but he said, you know, every AD keeps a short list in their breast pocket. Um, I don't know that he's actually got one in his pocket, but uh, the point being, you're always keeping an eye on up and coming coaches, who's a coach in a situation who might be leaving. Um, because let's face it, as the Baylor thing showed, right, you can lose your coach when it's not on your terms too. Correct. So being prepared um, to me is, is due diligence. And, and I give Whit Babcock credit for that in, in that I know some people view it as a little underhanded to think like, okay, is he looking for the next coach while he's still got an existing coach? But again, part of it is being prepared. Now, I think I said this when the ACC was looking for a commissioner. I said, I would hire David Teal of the <laughs> Richmond Times Dispatch. If I was hiring an AD, I would hire David Teal of the Richmond Times Dispatch. You are not the AD at Virginia Tech, but if you were, where would you be looking right now? Who's on on who's in your breast pocket on that short list? Mike, the first name on that list. And again, this is aiming high, no idea of potential interest. In fact, my suspicion is there would not be mutual interest. But the first person on that list would be Dave Clawson, without without question. Who has ties in the state, coached at Richmond very successfully. Now as we see what he's done at Wake Forest, so knows the ACC landscape. Uh, and is a guy who is really known, I think, um, one, for offense, uh, mm-hmm. and two, for doing more with less, right? I mean, he's been places where he's had limitations um, and has been able to excel. And it'd be interesting to see what he could do with the kind of facilities and financial support that, that tech gives. But David, you, you kind of hinted at it. Do you see Clawson leaving Wake for another conference team? No, I don't. Simpl- for, for several reasons, Mike. I, I talked to Dave a couple of weeks ago. Now, th- it had nothing to do with Virginia Tech, and I didn't ask him, hey, if this opens, might – no, it was not that kind of conversation we were talking about his construction of this Wake Forest program and all that's been involved with it. And part of it is Wake Forest's investment in him, in his staff, and in the infrastructure. Wake Forest just got another $20 million donation, Mike, Mm -hmm. to further enhance its facilities, which are already on par with most, if not all, and maybe even better than most, if not all, in the ACC, with with the exception of of Clemson. Sure. So he has that. I think he's very comfortable in that private school, small private school setting. Witnesses success at Richmond and Fordham Mm -hmm. and some of the assistant coaching jobs that that he has held. And also look at what Wake Forest is, is doing this season. You know, if the Deacons go to the ACC championship game, that would delay any movement by at least a week. So I, th- I think there are uh, so many moving parts there that my guess is there there would not be mutual interest from from yeah. Dave Claus. I, I agree, and, and and I mean I think he would be a a great candidate. The other one that he's sort of my pie in the sky candidate, uh, Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. But David, with them poised to make the move, with what Cincinnati's done, with with the resources that they're going to have going forward, that one seems like a stretch too. Yes. Oh, I absolutely agree. Now, if James Franklin leaves Penn State or if Ryan Day ever left Ohio State, Luke Fickle would probably be the ideal candidate. But, you know, let's let's be let's remind our listeners that Whit Babcock did not hire Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. There's there's no connection there even though Whit is the former AD for the Bearcats. So, okay, so we don't think Clawson, we don't think Fickle. We can talk, we're going to get to this right after we, we go over these possible candidates about just how good this tech job is. Mm-hmm. But David, who who should then be on the radar? Who's a reasonable, a guy who would come and a guy who you'd want to come? I think they're going to look at some group of five head coaches. I don't think it's any secret right now that the hot, hottest ones out there are Billy Napier at Louisiana, who, by the way, plays at Liberty this this weekend if Witt wants to drive on over to Lynchburg and <laughs> make, make a recruiting pitch. Um, then there is, hey, Hugh Freeze at Liberty, though I wonder if there's too much baggage there 
from his Ole Miss tenure. Hey, if you're going that route, give me Ed Orgeron. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie Chadwell yeah. at Coastal Carolina certainly has run a very productive offense, wildly successful with the Chanticleers. Those are three that, that, that come to mind there. If, Mike, Whit Babcock just decided to even consider coordinators or even just assistant coaches, which at the end of the day, I, I believe he will hire a sitting head coach. But if he delved into coordinator consideration, here are two names. Marcus Freeman mm-hmm. is the defensive coordinator in Notre Dame and a former Cincinnati defensive coordinator. Very well regarded. And Josh Gaddis hmm. is the offensive coordinator at Michigan. He's a former Wake Forest defensive back. And Witt and Josh Gaddis know one another because they are in a formal mentoring relationship that was organized or coordinated by Desiree Reed Francois, <laughs> the former Hokies associate AD, who when she was the AD at UNLV, she's since moved on to Missouri. But while at UNLV, Desiree put together this consortium of ADs to mentor minority assistant coaches who aspire to the big chair. And the pairing for Josh Gaddis was with Babcock at Virginia Tech. Yeah, it'd be interesting fan reaction to Freeman or Gaddis. Those feel like the kind of hires that could be the best hires for your program if you could sell them to your fan base, which I don't know if you can. Here was what Whit Babcock had to say about the coaching search this morning during his press conference. We are looking for a coach that fits the values of Virginia Tech and what we stand for. We're looking for a coach that will engage the community successfully locally and beyond. We're looking for a leader, a CEO, that has character and competence. We're looking for a teacher and an educator that's committed to the total student-athlete experience and what it develops in young people. We're looking for a coach with a vision, a plan, and a tremendous ability to recruit this footprint successfully. We're looking for a coach that can do player evaluation, player development, and hires a great and complimentary staff around it. We want a coach that is comfortable in the paradigm of being at the top of the ACC. We define excellence at Virginia Tech is to rise up and surpass, and that's exactly what we need the next coach to do and that we fully plan to do. So obviously, uh, Witt's got his hands full. I would think one place he doesn't go (laughs) is to South Carolina. And I know there's a segment of the fan base that would love to have Shane Beamer back, and there's probably every beat writer in Blacksburg who would love to have Shane Beamer back. But David, uh, Shane just started that job at South Carolina. It's a Power 5 job in the SEC at a place that he has ties to. I don't see that happening. Do you? No, I don't. Uh, as as you mentioned, Mike, he he just started uh, after after taking that that job uh, from Oklahoma, where he was on Lincoln Riley's staff. And Shane has learned from some of the best, including his dad and Steve Spurrier, and Lincoln Riley, uh, Kirby Smart, and I just think that he needs to prove himself at South Carolina. And oh, by the way, there's not the small matter of his $7 million buyout at South Carolina. And that that would be another consideration at Wake Forest. It's a private school, so we don't know the terms of Dave Clawson's contract. But I would imagine his buyout is fairly steep as well. And David, I'm not convinced that, in fact, I'm probably convinced it's not, Virginia Tech being a better job than South Carolina. Um, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother issue, but that's what I wanted to ask you about next. How do we view, and maybe less importantly, how do coaches across America view the Virginia Tech job? Um, I think a lot of the the luster of the, the Frank Beamer, Michael Vick, uh, those days are, are behind them. I don't know that it resonates with recruits. It might resonate a little more with coaches. What they've done with facilities would seem to appeal to coaches. What kind of a job is this? I think it's a pretty darn good one. Now, is it as good as LSU, Washington, USC? No, but I think it's the best job in the ACC Coastal, even better than North Carolina. Why? Because Hokies fans care. They care desperately about their football program. And yes, that can be a blessing and a curse, but I think mostly 
It is a blessing. And because of that passion and because of the heritage that, that you have mentioned and because of the determination of Whit Babcock and Tim Sands to get Hokies football back on the national radar, I think it's a very attractive job. And if you're willing to pay $8.75 million to get out of a contract, I know that's a lot, and it can be the converse where it hurts your budget, but that also signals to me you're ready to spend a, a pretty penny going forward, right? You don't spend that kind of money to get out of a contract if you're not looking to upgrade. Yeah, you're not, you're not, gonna, you're not gonna go cheap. No way. Now, the last thing on this topic, David, and, and Justin Fuente has spent the last two and a half years on the hot seat. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope he I hope he sits on Tuck's medicated pads every day because <laughs> I can't imagine that kind of scrutiny uh, over that time period. I mean, this was legitimate hot seat, not just, you know, hot takes on the radio. This was real pressure and real question about his future. I think that Justin Fuente was keeping that seat warm for Whit Babcock. I, I, I think that the minute you make this move, and I think Whit understands this, it's his butt on the line now. And this next hire is will be the one that determines Whit Babcock's future at Virginia Tech. Am I overreacting or uh, is is the heat on Whit Babcock now? Well, the heat is certainly on, on Whit Babcock. But understand two things. Number one, he just got a contract extension <laughs> through 2029. So clearly he has the confidence of Tim Sands and the Board of Visitors. And as Babcock mentioned during his presser today, every AD, if you're in the business long enough, you're going to whiff on some. You, you just are, meaning coaching hires. It's happened to the absolute best. And he, he hit it big with Buzz. He appears to have hit it big with Mike Young. Heck, he appeared to have hit it big with Justin Fuente. And I thought he had an interesting quote today. Someone was asking him about, you know, his responsibility and all this and his accountability. He said, Justin didn't fail. The team didn't fail. We all failed. thought that was pretty good. It is. It's good and it's insightful and it's honest. But at the end of the day, only one guy lost his job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was Justin Fonte. And that comes with the position. Uh, David, speaking about the position, and, and I know this is the topic of the day, but let's let's talk a little football. Tech has elevated J.C. Price, uh, like I said, a former All-American defensive lineman for them, a guy that you've known for a while, I've known for a long time, back to his uh, days at JMU as an assistant coach. Then he went to Marshall, uh, a, a guy that players really love playing for. It's my opinion, anyway, that the Hokies are in pretty good hands. The, the players are in pretty good hands for the next couple of weeks with J.C. Price. That starts Saturday at Miami. What do we expect from this team going through this massive change? What do we expect from them Saturday in Miami? Well, Mike, you mentioned that you think with J.C. Price, the team is in pretty good hands. I would concur, absolutely. And I believe Virginia Tech will play inspired football the next two weeks. And I, I think it, it sets up pretty well for them to do just that. Number one, they need to win at least one more to qualify for postseason. Number two, Miami is a longtime rival. And number three, UVA is, is the Commonwealth Cup. And they will certainly be juiced for that. So I expect this team, which, by the way, deserves all kinds of credit, as does its former head coach, for continuing to play hard no matter the results, no matter how discouraging things appear. I expect the absolute same the next two weeks. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I thought they played with a ton of passion against Duke, and I know it's Duke, and uh, what does it really mean that you blow out Duke? But they they played like a team that was very engaged, that believed in itself, and that kind of treated the day like it could be a springboard going forward. The hope for the players now is that today's news doesn't derail that. Now, moving across the state, and speaking of getting derailed, we go into another week where UVA is trying to figure out what life without Brendan Armstrong is going to be. He came out on the field for warm-ups before the Notre Dame game, tossed a couple balls, kind of gave a wince, and jogged back into the locker room. I talked to Robert Unai, the offensive coordinator, this morning. He said he was able to do more at practice today, but there was a lot of times that the trainers were kind of tapping him on the shoulder and saying, not this, not that one, not this. Robert and I listed him as, as, as Coach Mendenhall did, as sort of day-to-day, a game-time decision. David, they looked punchless offensively against Notre Dame. Oh, absolutely. Three points. 
You know, their first time without a touchdown since against Miami, I believe, a couple few years ago when they only managed three field goals. And then, you know, Virginia went into that game, Mike, leading the country in total offense more than 540 yards per game. They barely got half that on Saturday. So punchless is a very apt description. And it wasn't all, you know, the backup quarterback, Jay Wolfuck, who uh, I thought was fine. He was underwhelming. He wasn't going to be Brennan Armstrong. Uh, He didn't blow us all away. Um, But I thought I came away at least with the impression that this is going to be a pretty good player one day. That day just isn't today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I wrote about this after the game. He also didn't get as much help from his team as he needed. Yes, Jay Wolf held the ball too long at times, but the offensive line was not at its best, granted, against a very good Notre Dame defensive front and a Notre Dame defense whose coordinator we referenced earlier, who was not shy about coming after a true freshman rookie quarterback. Uh, that was an issue. The wide receivers talked to me yesterday and today, Dontavian Wicks and Rayshon Henry, about needing to get open faster, which I found to be a fascinating topic because my feeling is, don't you always want to get open as fast as you can? Uh, and they talked about the different things you're doing to to beat press coverage, to get off the line, to run a good route. And there's priorities, and 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 you can take a little more time if you come open, knowing you have a quarterback back there who can get rid of the ball quick, a line that's going to protect. They said they need to reshuffle their priorities essentially to getting open as fast as possible is maybe more important than this mark or that mark. And It'll be interesting to see if Wolfuck plays again. But David, I thought the biggest hindrance to Jay Wolfuck winning his first game as a starting quarterback was the other side of the football. Mm-hmm. I thought the defense was terrible. I thought for the second game, as was the case at BYU, they couldn't tackle at all. Uh, that's a major problem. Nick Howell did not enjoy my line of questioning this morning when I asked about how you improve tackling, and he, he got a bit short and, and testy with the group because I kept asking, but David, you got to figure that out because if you get your defense into the right position and you still can't make the play, well, what the heck's the point? No doubt. And, you know, I went back and and watched some of the Notre Dame game on, on DVR and you're absolutely correct. The tackling was poor and Bronco Mendenhall after the game Saturday with us and again Monday was talking about the improvement on defense from the Brigham Young game. But of course they were going to be somewhat better than at Brigham Young. They couldn't be much worse. And oh, by the way, let's remember, Mike, Notre Dame led after three quarters, 28 nothing. They shut it down in the fourth quarter. They didn't even try to score. They were playing their reserves. Kyron Williams had one carry in the fourth quarter. Notre Dame's last nine plays were eight rushes, and one pass. They went three and out on their last <clears throat> three possessions. They, they weren't trying to score more points. Does anyone doubt that that could have been a whole lot more than 28? Right. And, and they, the other thing that's amazing is they were scoring and breaking big plays with guys other than Kyron Williams. And that's mm-hmm. how bad Virginia's defense was. The four different running backs had runs of over 20 yards in that game. Uh, that means you're missing tackles on everybody, uh, which is, again, this huge problem, which spins us forward to, hey, you're going to Pittsburgh. The Coastal Division title is on the line. You're playing Kenny Pickett and one of the best offenses in the country. David, if they don't have Brendan Armstrong again, and it sounds like there's a real good chance they won't, what are their chances at Pittsburgh? Slim just left town. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah, I, I think it'll be really, really difficult because Pitt can clinch the Coastal Division on Saturday. Virginia cannot, but Pitt sure can. And you have to think that Kenny Pickett and company are going to be motivated and beyond given what's at stake for them. Kenny Pickett is is number three in the country to Brennan Armstrong's number one in total offense. He's got receivers such as Jordan Addison, who shares the national lead with 11 touchdown receptions. And oh, by the way, the Panthers can run it a little Mm -hmm. bit. You know, Israel Abanaconda, you know, I saw him go for more than 100 plus against Virginia Tech. He's averaging better than five yards a carry. They're not just Kenny Pickett dropping back and slinging it all over the yard. So I think that becomes a very, very difficult chore 
for the Cavaliers without Brennan Armstrong. Yeah, as much as I hate the idea of the UVA defense facing Kenny Pickett, I don't feel much better about Pitt's defense the way they're going to get after Wolfuck because that mm-hmm. is a defense that generates a ton of sacks and pressure, mm-hmm. really comes after you with the blitz, especially on third down, and plays a ton of that press man coverage, exactly what Wicks and Henry were explaining to me about timing and about how to how to get open faster. Pittsburgh makes that damn near impossible with the way they jam you at the line. So just in terms of a matchup, <laughs> this is a terrible, terrible week, in my opinion, uh, for UVA. You know who agrees with me? Las Vegas. Las Vegas has UVA as a two-touchdown pup at Pittsburgh. Wow. They've got uh, Virginia Tech as a touchdown road dog at Miami. Let's get into all those lines and, and a whole lot more. It's our good friend, Aaron McFarling, the outstanding sports columnist from the Roanoke Times. Aaron, good to have you back. Good to be here, Mike. I'm leaking confidence in my football picks. That's for darn sure. Last week's Syracuse pick was about as bad as a pick can be. But uh, Northern Ireland came through with a nil thrill today against Italy. That was a big result for me. So, uh, you know, things even out in the end. I just hope I can do a little better for the readers this time. There you go. Well, we haven't lost any confidence in you, in part because we we know your soccer acumen, and we assume it'll transfer over to the other football. Uh, let's take a look at these games, and let's start with, with Virginia Tech. Uh, you were there for their uh, pretty impressive win over, albeit Duke, Uh Thought they played well, played with energy. Now uh, they're on the road to Miami to a team that looked like it had gotten itself kind of going in the right direction. And then came the Florida State game and a little bit of a train wreck for the Hurricanes and Manny Diaz back on the hot seat. I'm looking at Miami as a seven-point favorite there in South Florida. What do you like, Aaron? I like Miami. Uh, You know, it it just – I think – it was a little bit of fool's gold seeing the Hokies succeed against Duke the way they did. It was nice to see it. Uh, I wrote about how nice it was to see people smiling and enjoying themselves on the football field. But I, I think that joy ends now. I think they're going to go on the road and get beat. I mean, they, they've been really bad on the road. They're only 2-8 against the spread in their last 10 road games. That includes that that fiasco in Boston that I was there for a couple weeks ago. Um you know, Miami's no better at home. I mean, they're two and eight against the spread in their past 10 at home. So it's weakness against weakness here. But uh, I do like the way Miami, uh, last week notwithstanding, I do like the way they've been playing over the second half of the season much more than I like the way the Hokies have been playing. I mean, that offense is still very untrustworthy in my mind. And um, so I'm going to go with Miami here 31 20. We're going to see a new coach here in Blacksburg. I don't know if Manny still has a shot to. So take to keep his job. Yeah, I don't like anybody's odds, especially uh, this week with Miami's AD being uh, removed from that post. That's never a good sign when your boss gets his walking papers. How about UVA, where uh, Bronco Mendenhall's job is pretty safe? They're going to Pittsburgh. They're a 13 and a half point underdog at Pitt in a game that could decide the Coastal Division. Aaron, what do you like there? Man, I feel like we're getting cheated. I was listening to that Virginia game last weekend on the way home from Blacksburg, and that's what the Virginia uh, color guy said. You know, he's like, he felt like he was getting cheated, not getting to see Virginia at its best in that Notre Dame game. And uh, it's true. I mean, we should have, it would have been a really heck of a matchup there. Uh, this one has a tendency, uh, has a chance to, to go the same way if Armstrong can't play or is playing at a much level, lower level than his normal um <clears throat> you know, uh, abilities. So I don't know, man, even if he were healthy, uh, it would be a tough, a tough game, a tough win. I, I, I think it's going to be even tougher, you know, given, given the status of the quarterback position, you know, were they just holding him back in the hopes that they could get right, you know, a, a 95% Armstrong for this game? Maybe. I mean, if that's the case, then uh, fireworks will fly in Pittsburgh, but uh, from given what we know and all we know, um, I'm going to go Pittsburgh here pretty big. I'm going to go Pittsburgh 40 to 20. And, you know, the Cavs have covered four straight ACC games, and I think that's going to end here. So, Aaron, I'm interested. You mentioned Brendan Armstrong, the injury. David and I have talked a lot about that. But I'm looking at Pitt by almost two touchdowns, and that tells me that Vegas doesn't think Armstrong's going to play. But then I'm looking at an over-under of 66 and a half, which seems to me to indicate they think it's going to be a high-scoring game, which would maybe mean Armstrong back. Do you get a sense which way Vegas is leaning, or, or what should we make of those numbers? 
Well, I think maybe they're thinking a little bit long my lines, which is that Pitt's going to run rough shot over Virginia's defense, you know, because that, that's, you know, kind of been the problem for, for Virginia. They haven't really stopped a lot of people this season. Uh, even, I mean, last week was one of their better defensive efforts, which isn't saying much, I guess. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think I think the uncertainty is, is you know, hurts Virginia's total for sure, but but I think you're still going to see a lot of points from, from Kenny Pickett and company. And, and that's where I think the, the big number comes from. I think if you set it too low, if you set it in the fifties, everybody and their brother is going to hop on that, on that over there, just because they know that uh, Virginia can't stop anybody and, and Pickett's uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the country, at least performing like it. So that's 66 and a half points. And they're expecting most of them to come from the Panthers. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think that's that's the case. I mean, the implied score would be something in the neighborhood of what, uh, forty to twenty six. You know, something like that, forty to twenty six and a half. That's the implied score from the odds. So, uh, you know, that's still a good number of points for Virginia. So, I understand what you're saying. I mean, it does imply that that Virginia would be able to move the ball if they're going to score that many points. But um, I think it's it's. It, it, more than anything, it's it's trust that uh, that Pittsburgh won't have a lot of problems moving the ball up and down the field. Good stuff. Well, before we let you go, let's get that upset from across the board. Aaron, what's your uh, puppy chow upset special this week? I'm going to go to the Pac-12, and I'm going to take Oregon. You know, Oregon's 9-1, and one, but they're catching three at Utah. Uh, you know, Oregon's not an or- underdog very often, you know, it's, it's, but it's dangerous to doubt the Ducks when they are an underdog. They've covered in five of their past six as a pup. The series, too, has been good for pups. Uh, they've covered in four of five in the matchup between Oregon and Utah. I'm going to say Oregon keeps its nose in the playoff discussion by getting a win here, 30 to 27. Yeah, you know, Oregon's an interesting team, man. I was watching them after the UVA game because they had that late game. And when I turned on the TV and for about a quarter, I thought, well, this team's going to lose. If not tonight to Washington, they're going to lose somewhere. Uh, it's going to go down. And, and then they kind of got rolling. And I thought, man, this might be one of the four best teams in the country. So it uh, will be interesting to see which of the duck iterations we get. Always interesting to spend some time with you, Aaron. Thank you again. Thank you, Mike. Good luck, everybody. David, well, with with all that we just covered, uh, it's also basketball season. Oh, really? We won't, we won't spend too long on this, but uh, it has been an interesting start, I think, uh, for both of the teams we look at, UVA and Virginia Tech. Let's start with UVA. Um, work in progress is the phrase we keep hearing from Tony Bennett, from uh, Jason Williford, from the players. Work in progress. The defense is a work in progress. The offensive identity. David, what have you liked so far from UVA, and and what is maybe a red flag? Well, I think that having seen Navy in person against Virginia Tech, and then on television a little bit last night against Louisville, and you know Navy's got an experienced roster and plays hard and may be a factor in the Patriot League, but that loss to Navy to open the season for UVA, that's that's kind of a red flag. Mm-hmm. You've got to defend better than that. You've got to close out on three-point shooters better than that. What you like is, I think, Gardner is all that he was built up to be on, on the offensive end. He is going to be the focal point of that offense. And Armand Franklin had a terrific bounce-back game, as, as you wrote about, uh, against Radford. And that was a really cool anecdote that, that you had about Kia texting him essentially in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know, that that's why shooters shoot. Yeah, they uh, had a late game. And, and I said, I said, hey, did anybody reach out to you? I was thinking, you know, the next day, kind of pat on the butt, like hang in there. And he said, yeah, Kia Clark was texting him at two in the morning saying, <laughs> even if you don't believe in yourself, I believe in you. And um, and certainly Franklin showed it the next game out. The kid shot 42.4% in Indiana. Um, so while his one for seven from three on opening night was alarming, I don't think any of us were worried that that was going to stick. No, not at all. And we'll find out a whole lot more about the Cavaliers tonight. Absolutely. Tonight in Houston against a team that was in the final four, a top 15 team. And David, I'll tell you, uh, I know this will be outdated quickly, but what I hate about this matchup is Houston just pounds the offensive glass glass. and UVA has had real trouble giving up offensive boards so far this season. So uh, if you're hearing this before tonight's game, that's one thing to look at. How about Virginia Tech, David, because you got to see them in person. Uh, You mentioned up there. 
And this is a team that I, I said I thought was going to be better than Virginia from the start. Um, how the season ends, we'll see. I don't think they have enough depth. But Keve Aluma is as expected. Storm Murphy is a great fit, a perfect addition. The defense looks good. David, you got to be encouraged right now with what you see from Virginia Tech. Absolutely. And and I, I know it's kind of, I don't know, in the weeds a little bit, Mike, but you know what really stuck out to me about Virginia Tech against Navy, and specifically Keve Aluma, was he went 10 for 10 from the line. And the reason I think that's important is that last season, Keve Aluma attempted more free throws per game than any player in the ACC. He's going to get to the line a lot. And last season, he shot about 72% on his free throws. If he can bump that up into the like low 80s, that's a lot of points. That mm-hmm. could be the difference between a couple of wins. And it and- also changes, and if you talk to any assistant coach that does the scouting report, when guys get up over 80, it's in the scouting report that we don't want a foul, right? Mm-hmm. You're still going to draw a contact if you're Kevin Aluma, but the idea that that's a better play for the defense kind of comes off the board and, and, and it complicates things for the defense. I think, you know, Aluma is the go-to guy. And if he's able to score at the line as well as with his shots, yeah, that elevates his value. Yeah. And Mike, you, you look around the rest of the league and some of the other non-conference setbacks that, that teams have had, you know, I, I think more and more of, of Virginia Tech's chances. And then you look at, at preseason favorite Duke and what's going to go on there now in light of Paolo Boncaro's arrest along with Coach K's grandson uh, earlier today with, with a DUI incident that, that goes back to, to Sunday? What kind of discipline are, are they facing just a lot of question marks around the conference right now. No doubt. Important to, to note that Banchero was not arrested for a DWI. He's got that funky Carolina charge of aiding yes. and abetting, which essentially means he was a passenger. He was a passenger, uh, yes. But I cannot imagine uh, Mike's frustration with his own grandson, who was a walk-on that they put on scholarship uh, mm-hmm. to end up in this situation. But uh, we talked about last episode, assuming things are okay there. We really like that Duke team, the, the experience, the talent. Um, it's going to be a fun year in the ACC. And guys, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about ACC basketball. But today was a day for football, and today was a day for the big change uh, at Virginia Tech. We appreciate you listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available along with David's take on the big news out of Blacksburg today at richmond.com. Today's show is produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next time. Next time.